Just say what's on your mind. Tell them here and let them be. Well, I got something deep inside of me. I can't hide it anymore. It needs to be so free. There's no time to let this tale get old. No, no, no. It's the best. Welcome to the show. My guest is a very distinguished and seasoned storyteller. Uh, I'll get into some of his credits. Uh, this is Trey Calloway. Hello. Uh, so I wanted to start uh, by, this will give a little bit of your bio too, by me telling you a story I've never told you before about myself and your wife. Oh, wow. Curiosity is peaked. Which, yeah, which sounds intriguing. Uh, so basically... <laughs> For everyone listening, uh, among Trey writes a lot of drama, television, film, uh, a thousand credits. One of my f- personal favorites is I still know, know what you did last summer. <laughs> but on top of that, uh, Trey also uh, spends time teaching and, and has taught at the University of Southern California for a number of years. This will be my 14th year and my 21st group of students next week. Wow. Uh, so... Uh, during that time, I was uh, your teaching assistant for one semester. This is true. And Toughest this is... job in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so this is the part of the story that involves your wife that I guess I never mentioned to you or had a reason to. I don't know. I just never came up. But you should, I guess, hear it now before we hear your I'm excited. untold story. But I basi- think. Yeah. But, no, it's, it's, it's totally innocent. <laughs> okay. But basically, you know, as a, as a little bit of, backstory for anyone listening you know Trey teaches this particular class where as a teaching assistant I could observe the other students right because I'm not actually doing it I'm just auditing so and for the most part um, people uh, get really intimidated because you know especially in the first class you come in you do like kind of a presentation where people don't expect it and then everyone's like i just got jedi'd you know by trey calloway like how did that happen and then you know if anyone looked up any sort of your bio your background they're like oh trey like works actively in the industry and writes all the time and like runs shows and so this is like factor of like oh this is like a big presence right uh uh, and then and then you know people you you get to know you and i'm a pussycat and people are like, oh, he's, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> the wall gets broken down a bit. But uh, that said, you know, everyone's like impressed by all of your achievements and that and all that. So uh, I one day, I think your wife was just visiting mm-hmm. you. Um, and so I had to kind of set up a drive on, Okay, you know, just to get her on campus to park and sure. walk her to the classroom and all that. Um, you were going to meet her after class or something. And uh and I was as I was ex- escorting her to your class, mm-hmm. I think she just asked me like some bio questions about myself, just like some side like walking banter. Right, right. And then I basically told some sort of version of like myself being kind of like a late bloomer in screenwriting, where mm-hmm. like I had like a career, so I, I started grad school like a little bit later in life, uh-huh. and like I didn't, I wasn't like I pursued it from jump or from undergrad like like I worked and then I decided I wanted to pursue screenwriting and mm. then 
So I started school like a little bit later um, than some of the other classmates I had that were a little bit younger. Right. And then, yeah, she just said like kind of casually to me, uh, uh, it didn't happen for Trey overnight. No. Hang in there. <laughs> you'll, you'll, it'll come. And uh, it just, I kind of was, I mean, sometimes you hear that, you know, and you, 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 you either like think it's like, eh, no, you're just saying that. No, she's not just saying that. Yeah, but from when she said that to me, it, I, I don't know, it kind of like stuck with me because, you know, it kind of like broke some kind of facade mm. of like, oh yeah, Trey didn't, this doesn't happen, his achievements didn't happen overnight either. No, it took me a long time to pay off those USC student loans. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was, it was kind of like a little bit of inspiration, right? Oh, that's and was, lovely. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, so when you see you know, someone's success, you gotta, sometimes you don't know all the work that no, went into it that's or, very or you don't true. think, or you don't think about it. Like, I just think about you as like this professor that everyone's like, oh man, he's like really good at his, at his right. job. Right. You see the end result. Yeah. Um, you don't see, you don't see all the ramps, uh, it took to get there. And, uh, and of course you also don't see that that person is just as hopelessly insecure, even at their <laughs> level as you are. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, and I did realize uh, as that semester progressed where you kind of would share a little bit of your, your work life mm-hmm. and you would be like, oh man, he has to go through some tough work yeah. stuff too. Like it's not all roses no, and no. daisies. It's still at the end of the day, the greatest job in the history of jobs, but it ain't easy. Yeah. That's for sure. Uh, so I wanted to share that. Thank you. Um, it's good to hear. I'm sure she'll be happy to hear that. And uh, so I think this particular episode will be kind of fun for me because for someone like yourself who's a storyteller for a living mm-hmm. and very, at this point, seasoned, and we mentioned before we start taping that you've now done this globally yeah. as, a, as a writer and in, like an s- instructor. Mm-hmm. So for someone who pays his bills telling stories, Mm-hmm. I'm asking you to not tell any of those stories <laughs> and instead, you know, go into the vault and tell a story that, you know, is untold, a bit unpolished, but has some kind of, you know, meaning t- to you in some kind of way. Yeah. Uh, and I think that'll be kind of fun. Well, that's what I'll do. It's interesting because especially with your, your setup to all of this, um, this is a very self, self-reflexive story. This is a story that, um, this is a story that I actually have told before, but only in dramatic form. And I mm. have never told the actual truth behind the story before. Oh, now. interesting. Okay. So, um, so wow, here it goes. Um, okay, we're going to go way back, David, probably before you were born. <laughs> we're, okay. we're, we're in the 1980s. And I grew up in... I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is uh, right smack dab in the middle of the heartland. And yep. uh, and as we were saying or discussing briefly before we started rolling tape, I um, I went to the same school K through twelve. Right. This was um, a public school that uh, certainly by LA standards felt like maybe the greatest of the private schools you might imagine going to in LA, but it was a public school in a little suburb of Tulsa, which is a town called Jinx, J-E-N-K-S. Okay. Never heard. Jinx, Oklahoma, or Jinx America, as they call themselves. Um, 
Jinx is uh, just outside of South Tulsa and uh, part of a number of little sort of bedroom communities that that uh, bump up against uh, Tulsa. And Jinx was a tremendous place to grow up and go to school because um, it was this little town was a town that from the time the first one-room schoolhouse opened hmm. up to this present day when there were multiple campuses at this point. Right. Um, Jinx is a town that always prioritized education and was a town that n- never failed to pass a bond issue for Jinx Public Schools. Hmm. So if the school needed something, the community rallied around it. And, you know, as I was saying earlier, it it did sort of create a certain level of false expectations for me in terms of what to expect educationally for my own kids later on in life in, in Los Angeles. But growing up in this, I didn't know any better and I didn't know what an extraordinary place this was to go to school. Um, it's, it's not just a Friday Night Lights town where you have a 6A championship football team and the fancy stadium and the incredible, you know, uh, uh, games and teams of all kinds. But, you know, uh, uh, extraordinary um, educational facilities and libraries and, and a performing arts center with revolving classrooms behind glass and oh, wow. a, a, a cable television station and, you know, just like... I learned so much in this place. Back in the eighties, this is back in the eighties. Like they had a little TV. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's the first TV production I ever did was in my own high school. Uh, before I even got into film school that's, out here, that's pretty progressive. Yeah, it was it was it was quite tremendous. Um, but it was also um, at the time, you know, it's in the heart of the Bible Belt. So this was a school, even though it was a public school, for example, in elementary school and middle school, I think all the way up, almost up to high school, we were saying the Lord's Prayer every morning. Mm. Um, you know, there were strict hair codes and dress codes. And, you know, it was very, okay. yeah. although it was progressive in many respects educationally, it was also very reflective of of the society that it was a part of, and the community it was a part of. Right. Um, all of which is a long-winded way of saying, while I had a great time in school and I made many friends, particularly at this point in the 80s, Tulsa itself was a town. I think it's changed a lot since I moved away. Um, but certainly at the time, Tulsa was a town and that sort of area of South Tulsa was an area where you might have a giant shopping mall on one corner and on the opposite corner, you'd have cattle grazing in a field, right? Oh, wow. So still a a very active collision between rural and urban life at that time. I think it still is to a certain extent, but not like it was then. Okay. And and I think, as is often the case with young boys in particular, um, it was a place where it felt like certainly at that time, there was a not a lot, there was not a lot to do in your spare time and okay. so young boys when they get bored tend to get themselves in trouble right <laughs> <laughs> especially uh, when they run in packs so this particular story began uh, the summer between my freshman and sophomore year in high school okay okay and that summer uh, although we all had 
jobs working at most of my group of friends. We all worked at the same area grocery store in our neighborhood. So we were bag boys or we were working as grocery clerks or stocking shelves or back rooms or whatever. And so we all had a little bit of money, but we were bored, like I said, and we were always looking for something interesting to do. Okay. One particular Saturday, myself and three of my closest friends at the time, who have all remained my close friends over the years, and who are probably aghast that I am <laughs> unearthing this story. Nice. Um, we were all wandering, and we uh, I think at least one of us had a driver's license at this point, and so we decided to drive out into what was then sort of uh, vaguely referred to as South Tulsa, but in fact it was part of yet another little suburban community called Broken Arrow, which is still in existence, much bigger than it ever was then. Broken Arrow was definitely much more rural at this point. And so we're driving around aimlessly looking for something to do. And we come across one of these intersections. Um, I think, not that it matters, but I think it was specifically... Because uh, it may be of interest to anyone who lives there and ever hears this, because I'm sure it has changed so much. But I think this particular intersection was 111th and Sheridan. That seems about right to me. Somewhere in that area. Very, very south. And um, there was, on this particular corner, nothing but woods as far as the eye could see. Okay. And one corner of the intersection. But what you could see inset from the road a little bit was a rotting wooden fence Hmm. that sort of marked off this area of property. And you could also see that there was at least at one time, there was a driveway that went in to this particular wooded area, but it had long since sort of grown up and again was fenced off. Hmm. And I don't know why exactly, but for some reason, this little driveway to nowhere spoke to us okay and we decided we would park the car and we would wander off down this driveway into the woods which is something that i had grown up doing anyway you know even just living in a residential neighborhood virtually all of the neighborhoods at that time backed up uh at some point to nothing but woods or creeks and so i spent so much of my youth just exploring the middle of nowhere okay um, So we park the car, we wander up this overgrown driveway, probably about, oh, I would say a thousand yards into the woods until, to our great surprise, we saw the driveway ended at an abandoned home in the middle of the woods. Mm. And this home had been abandoned clearly for years, but it was still structurally intact few broken windows here or there, all covered in dust and dirt. Yeah. Um, some clearly sagging, leaky parts of the roof. But for the most part, this little, uh, it was actually like a 19, um, single story, 1930s era home. Okay. Had for reasons unbeknownst to any of us, just been completely abandoned and left to, uh, to rot in the woods. Yeah. And, you know, because we're young boys, we, the minute we, even just stepping up outside it, it, 
it we're we're sure that it's haunted, right? This must it's like yeah. it's, it's creepy looking, and it's broad daylight, but heavy tree cover, so it it feels darker than it would out on the road and you and you could hear a pin drop in these woods there's just clearly no one has been there for many years so the front door is locked but one of the back doors is open and we manage to push our way in and we start exploring this house and there were a couple of things of interest one uh was behind a bar area in the house were scattered a bunch of, it was it, what do they called it v-mail it was um it was mail that had been sent from World War II from a soldier home. So oh, a lot wow. of these letters that clearly were important to some family at some point yeah, um, had been left behind and were just sort of scattered. And they kind of gave us a, a little, you know, glimpse into some of the people that had lived there. Clearly, this was a family home. Right. No indication of why they had ever left or why they had left any of these letters behind. But the rest of it was just empty. Um, and the second, I would say, most interesting and distinguishing feature about this home, for reasons which still vex me to this day <laughs> as a homeowner, uh, is that it had sort of a vaulted ceiling and, with beams running across. Okay. And the beams had been painted black. And the wood ceiling between the beams had been painted red. Oh. Which only made it that much creepier, right? Yeah. Now, it was yeah. dust-covered and cobwebby and all that. But just to step into the main living room of this home, yeah, it immediately said, Oh, my God, this is a haunted house. This is creepy. This yeah. Is creepy. I'm getting a little shaky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. So, um, so we, as we stand there in this living room, as again, young, bored men are wont to do. It takes us virtually no time whatsoever to hatch this plan. Okay. The plan is, look, a good portion of the work has already been done for us. There's an abandoned home in the woods. Mm -hmm. It has a creepy red and black ceiling and some broken windows here and there. What if we really lean into this and we truly outfit this place to look like an absolutely haunted house. Oh, okay. What if we use some of our connections at the local grocery store and we pull together some of our small change and we essentially, although I didn't know this term at the time, we set deck this place to look like mm. uh, what we all decided it should look like in that particular day, which is... A home of devil worship. Okay. Okay? Yeah. So, relying on various imagery we had gathered from watching horror movies as kids. Um, uh, I know, at least in one case, relying on symbols that were pulled from an album that one of my friends had just bought from the Blue Oyster Cult. I remember that in particular. There were some bizarre... Uh, pagan and I guess satanic symbols and religious symbols of different kinds on this album uh, we decided let's set deck this place let's really make it look like not somebody's abandoned home in the woods but an active home or center for satanic or demonic worship <laughs> again like in the most cliched Hollywood way right yeah yeah so that included uh, the following uh, efforts we 
one of my friends worked at Pier One. He had a summer job at Pier One. So okay. in the back room, they had a variety of broken candles that had been returned for a variety of reasons that were going to be thrown away. Mm-hmm. So we went and picked up a bunch of those candles. Okay. One of my friends had a younger sibling who still liked to draw with street chalk. So we got a white piece of street chalk from, from their house. And in the center of this floor of this home, we drew a large pentagram. Again, Mm. copied from some horror film we had seen. And then we took the broken candles and we planted them on each of the points of the, what is it, a five-point star, I think. And we intentionally melted them down to look as if they had been used many times. And we let the wax run into the floor. and So we got that all looking cool. And then uh, wandering around behind the house in the backyard where I should say, and this was kind of remarkable for Oklahoma because certainly for the time, there were not a lot of homes with swimming pools. But this house had an, uh, an empty oh. leaf and dirt filled swimming pool in yeah. the backyard. Um, but next to that was some kind of a work shed or maybe it had once been like a changing uh, shed for, for the pool. There was a work shed, and on the front steps of the work shed was sort of a, a homemade work table. And it was long. I would say it was probably about 10 feet long. So collectively, we dragged this table inside the house and into the living room. And we planted it strategically next to the pentagram on the floor. And then, again, using our grocery store contacts, we... We took a returned can of, I remember, High C Punch. It was, uh, <laughs> it was some red fruit punch. Okay, yeah. And we brought that back to the table, and we also went to a local hardware store, and we bought some short lengths of chain. And we nailed these lengths of chain to each of the four corners of this long table and we dragged the chain ends toward the center of the table as if the table had once been used to restrain someone around their wrists and ankles with this chain and then we poured the high C punch in the middle of the table as if there had been blood sacrifices performed on this table. Okay? Again, the wild imagination of teenage boys and then... The final move we made, and this is where I spent a fair amount of time uh, using my uh, calligraphic skills, Uh, again, relying on this particular Blue Oyster cult record that my friend had recently bought, I began to copy these symbols from the album onto the walls. I, I painted them on the walls around this room. And by the time we were finished, just before the sun was starting to set, the place absolutely looked like legitimate, at least in our ninth and 10th grade, ninth going on 10th grade minds, like right. a legitimate house of demonic worship. Yeah. The next question though was, okay, now that we've done this, what do we intend to do with it? Yeah. And I think we all knew from the get go what that plan was, which was to finish our work prepping the house and then, as most kids in, in that neck of the woods where we lived were wont to do, on a Saturday night, again, this brings into full perspective how little there actually was to do for kids at the time. 
but most kids on a Saturday night would hang out in front of a local, it's actually a regional chain of convenience stores called Quick Trip. Okay. And there was a Quick Trip at 81st in Yale where all the kids liked to hang on a Saturday night. They didn't do anything except hang out and eat microwave burritos yeah. and try to buy beer that nobody had IDs for. Um, but we would just hang out and talk and uh, kibitz with the friends. And so as soon as we wrapped up our work prepping this house, we all went like any kid would do on a Saturday night to Quick Trip. And we began to very nonchalantly ask different kids who were also hanging out there on a Saturday night. Yeah. Hey, did you guys hear about this devil house? <laughs> no. What's the devil? House? Well, I don't know. I haven't seen it, but I, I heard there's some place in the woods at like 111th in Sheridan or someplace like that. It's, but, but apparently like there's real devil worship happening there. Yeah. And just planting these seeds in conversation and by the time we all got back to school that Monday the entire school was ablaze with mm. conversation about the devil house dozens of kids had gone dozens of kids had been absolutely terrified out of their minds yeah by what they were completely convinced was a legitimate place of evil. <laughs> Only by chance, one of our close group of friends had not been able to come with us earlier that Saturday and help us prep the house. Mm. So the rest of us decided at one point to sort of playfully conspire against him and pretend like it was our first time to go to the devil house as well. Okay, okay. And we took our friend with us at night, where I will confess, having only prior to that been there during the day, going back at night with flashlights and walking down this long, creepy, overgrown driveway a thousand yards into the woods to come upon this house yeah, was truly terrifying. <laughs> and our friend, as soon as he got inside the house was so petrified that he got emotional and he wanted to leave immediately. Mm. And we tried to hold it together as long as it took to get back to the car before we finally collapsed in laughter and confessed to him that we were behind this devil house. And I remember actually being a little bit shocked by how upset he actually was by that. Not that he had been left out of the process. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, whatever his Saturday schedule was prevented that from happening regardless. But it was more that, like, he felt completely duped by us. Yeah. Like, how could you weave this fantastical tale and then, you know, force me to become more of your prey, right? <laughs> yeah. So he was, he was pissed, and it took us a while to sort of talk him down from that. In fact, to this day, he'll still grouse over, uh, over that particular aspect of it. But... What began to happen, David, is that, and it was, you know, I didn't know I was going to be a storyteller yet. I, I had a, um, I loved writing and I loved movies and television. And I also had a, uh, 
I had an alcoholic parent at home, so I was mm. trying to do everything I could to just not be home and to try and spin my own sort of yarns that I could control right? Um, rather than my actual life at that point. And, uh, and so I didn't really see it at the time for what it is. Um, it's more of a retrospective view. But, but I, I know that I really, at that point, when the whole thing was first taking off. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I really, really, really enjoyed creating this thing Mm -hmm. that not only had a a story of sorts that I supplied, you know, it's sort of like these pop-up experiential destinations that are very popular now where you, you know, it's a three-dimensional space that you go into and you can sort of, you can add your own story to it or create your own narrative around it. And that's definitely what was happening. Um, but I remember really particularly enjoying that not only had we come up with a story, but then it took on a life and many, many, many stories of its own. So what was happening on a regular basis for weeks yeah, is that kids, not just from our school, but all the area schools were going out to this devil house. And the stories that would come back were better than anything we could have ever conceived of. Mm. It wasn't just, did you see the human sacrifice table? It was, I saw a person on the table, (laughs) dismembered, (laughs) right? Yeah. It wasn't just, did you see the red and black ceiling? It was, I saw a six-eyed goat with red, you know, blazing eyes staring at me from the ceiling. It wasn't just that there was an empty leaf and dirt filled pool behind the house. It was, I saw a bloated body floating in water that wasn't there. Yeah. Right. And every weekend it would be packed with people. And then that next week, everyone was talking about the horrors of the hell house. Yeah. And because I was enjoying this so much, I guess... I must have inadvertently established myself as a bit of an expert on the devil house in my high school newspaper class. Okay. And I was on the high school newspaper staff. And of course the editor of our high school newspaper was the teacher. Yeah. And I guess the teacher had overheard me on more than one occasion soliciting various devil house stories and sort of leaning into whatever kid it might have been on any given day, you know, uh, sharing an account of the horrors they had experienced at this devil house Yeah, that she saw me as someone who seemed to know a fair amount about the devil house, which at a certain point finally prompted her to pull me aside and say, so Trey, I've been hearing about this devil house And you seem to know about it. So why don't you write a story for the school paper about the devil house and really try to do as much research as you can. Let's find out what this place is all about. So now part two of the story is, I have created this fictitious narrative. Yeah. And I have now been tasked with telling the quote unquote true story of this fabricated narrative. Yeah. 
So I remember, uh, and the name escapes me at this point, although I think I may have recycled it in part three, which I'll share with you later. Um, but I think I remember taking one of the names from one of those uh, GI bits of mail from the war. Mm, okay. And claiming to our newspaper editor slash teacher that uh, this house belonged to the, we'll say, Murdoch family. And, uh, and that uh, they had lost a son in the war. And uh, they, over, they were overcome with grief. Yeah. And uh, when none of their prayers were answered for this young man to come home safely, mm-hmm. uh, they lost their faith. And, of course, then at least certain members of the family turned to darker powers right. to try and bring him back. And that did not result ultimately in bringing him back, but it did result in this family being ostracized within the community. And they were ultimately forced to leave in the modern day equivalent of torches and pitchforks from the neighbors making the evil Murdochs leave the house. Something along those lines. Sure. Right? Yeah. So I spin this, again, a secondary wild fabrication of the truth, except this time I, I not only claim it as the truth, but I, I write about it as if it's the truth. Yeah. In the school newspaper. And it was published. And that only added to the narrative. Now everyone felt like they had a greater understanding of why there was so much evil. Yeah. In this house. And the story continued for the better part of a year until right before the end of what would have been my sophomore year of high school. Okay. Um, you know, again, this is the Bible Belt. There are a lot of very pious and very religious people and churches on virtually every corner in these communities uh, in Oklahoma. And one particular group of young people who were who were very religious decided that once and for all they were going to destroy this place of evil oh man so without telling anyone of course they went out one particular night and they set fire to this house set fire they set fire to this house in the woods and the local police and fire uh, folks were summoned and thankfully were able to put out the house, although it was destroyed. But thankfully, without catching woods around it on fire or causing any other yeah. property damage. But by the time it was put out, the house was no longer. Yeah. And for, for us, at the time, that was the end of the story. People still talked about it through all the rest of my years in high school. That devil house out there at 111th and who could forget. And yeah. so many horrible things happen, but isn't it great that it doesn't exist anymore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. And then ultimately, that leads us to part three of the story. Oh, nice. Part three of the story happens many years later. And I am trying to work as a writer in Hollywood and I had worked in a variety of features most of which didn't get made but at least paid my bills and then 
couple got made and then I started working in television a little bit and got my first series on the air and then did a bunch of, you know, development. And as a part of that sort of period, um, I remember being asked to take a general meeting on a show with the showrunner and the creator of a new show that was about to debut on what was then the WB network. Okay. So that's what led me to meet for the first time a guy who would later become my friend, uh, named Eric Kripke. And I was there to meet with Eric Kripke just before he launched season one of his extremely popular hit series, Supernatural. Mm. And Eric was, this is one of the things that I love about him, as great a storyteller as he is, he, he I'm not sure I know anybody who, who fully enjoys hearing stories as much as he does okay and um and so one of the first questions he asked me was uh i'm not i don't want to hear a pitch like i'm not asking you to pitch an episode but like do you know any good scary stories Hmm. and i proceeded without hesitation to tell him the story of the devil house he was the first person i had ever shared this story that i had shared now with you yeah and his immediate response was oh my god this has to be an episode of supernatural this has to be an episode about a group of kids who try to prank all of their friends and all of their classmates by creating this fake yeah uh haunted house but then ultimately the more people believe in it the more it is imbued with actual evil energy and power and it becomes the worst of what everyone thinks it is. Yeah. And God bless him. He hired me to freelance this episode in the first season of his series. It was episode 17 of season one of Supernatural. It's called Hell House. <laughs> okay. I used all of the names of all of my friends who had been involved with me in creating the Devil House in the actual episode. Oh, nice. And it launched a series of characters known as the Ghost Facers, who have been in virtually every one of its 15 seasons since then, as these recurring comical characters who are sort of wannabe paranormal investigators. Yeah. Kind of goofballs who, you know, certainly goofballs in comparison to the, you know, the Winchester brothers, uh, who are the stars of the show. But, um,. It was this, all the way up to and including, by the way, the use of Blue Oyster Cult music in the episode that had been from the album that I had used to create these symbols on the walls. Yeah. And it was this tremendous full circle example of, even though there were obvious dramatic liberties taken with what actually happened. Yeah. um, It was an an incredibly powerful and maybe one of the very first powerful experiences I ever had with using my life and experience as a direct source for story material. Mm. Um, but not until now have I ever told how, except for Eric Kripke, uh, have I ever told how, how, 
how crazy that story was from beginning to end. How yeah. it started with a prank and then it became a news story and then it became an episode of television that people still watch to this day. Wow, what a... <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the whole time, like, when you got to part three, I'm like, God, this went really full circle. Like, yeah. Yeah, like, whoa. Uh, <laughs> so, like, you know, people who may have seen this episode now know the inspiration or the original genesis of it or uh the thing that i like about the episode i just watched it again uh, maybe a year or so ago but it was known i know especially within that first season of supernatural it was known and it's still known among fans as a f- the funny episode mm. it has a sense of humor and in the episode as a b runner the two brothers are pranking each other throughout the episode okay like brothers or like young men are prone to do. And, yeah. they, and it keeps going until it starts to get out of hand and they're both getting really genuinely irritated with each yeah. other. But there's a sense of humor to the episode that that without anybody knowing before now what the actual story behind it was, that sense of humor that permeates the episode captures perfectly how entertained we were at the time Yeah, by fabricating this story and by hoodwinking everyone we knew. Um, so (laughs) if I can ask some, uh, you know, ask away because I've talked too long analysis, uh, type (laughs) questions. Uh, I guess this is the only one that comes to mind now. Uh, do you, do you think you could like, you have kids that have high school and above? Yeah. Still one, still one in high school and still one as a sophomore. (laughs) Do you think that could have been pulled off now? given all the technology and cameras. And yeah, that's a great both. question. Probably not. Or at least if it were, it would have to be a much more sophisticated prank. Yeah. Right. But but I, what, I, what I will say is the good old-fashioned theater of the imagination requires no technology whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So like I said, yeah, we spent, you know, whatever, 10 bucks on assorted supplies to try and set deck this place. But... That wasn't the strength of the illusion. The strength of the illusion was yeah. kids out there in the middle of the night getting themselves terrified and yeah. whether whether they actually saw thought they saw things or they were just reporting second and third and fourth yeah. hand what other kids claimed to see yeah. or their friends were just simply trying to scare them the way we were trying to scare everyone else. Whatever the case was. Yeah. That requires no technology whatsoever, right? That's, right, right? that's the that's the old game of uh, what's the game where you you tell a story and then they tell a story and then they by oh, the time like it gets telephone, yeah, telephone. Thank you. By the time it gets to the end, yeah, it's become something else entirely. Uh, okay, here's a here's a in the moment question. Mm. Like when you're you have to think back to high school now. <laughs> so when you heard versions like basically folklore of this thing you created. Mm-hmm. Did you start to second guess yourself? Were you like, maybe this place is haunted? Oh, maybe. yeah, that's great. Um, I didn't so much, but I know at least one of my friends was increasingly concerned specifically about the six-eyed goat. That was a thing that really stuck <laughs> in his craw, and he and he was genuinely, I think, fearful that, like, well, maybe, maybe we did start something, or maybe we unleashed something, or maybe we... Yeah. You know, and, and what, I mean, that was one of the great things that Eric Kripke lent to the story. It's an, it's an old classic um, sort of mythology about uh, tulpas. Tulpas are these sorts of um, horrors or demons that 
are given birth to by by the strength of belief. So okay, the the again, like I said, it was it was the way this episode unfolded. The more people collectively believe in something, yeah, the more true it becomes. Which yeah, you know, is 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 true in many respects in yeah. uh, in in human civilization, whether or not there's any horrors attached to it, and uh, you know, it's sort of a mob mentality. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think that some of that energy was definitely happening at the time amongst at least some of my friends about like, well, did we, did we do something that maybe wasn't as funny as we thought? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, was, I was wondering like, does at some point, does your mind get messed with, <laughs> <laughs> even though you're the people who messed with people's minds, you know? Well, it's interesting because, you know, having, again, having grown up in the Bible belt, you know, I remember I, I'll never forget actually going to, not to lapse into another story, but I'll try and keep it quick. I remember a, a cheerleader who would have otherwise never spoken to me because I was a complete geek in junior high. Um, still am, proudly. But she invited me to uh, an after-school pizza party at the church across the street from our yeah. school. And I remember going to this little you know, evangelical church and realizing shortly after we finished our pizza and we were being brought into the main sanctuary that we were actually there to to be born again. And and what I remember the most about that, aside from sort of the feeling of with both of my parents having been in advertising, you know, aside from the feeling of like, wait, is this what they mean by bait and switch? Like uh, I feel like I sort of got sold pizza and now I'm I gotta give up my soul for it. Um, but really what I, what I remembered strongly from that was, um, as I'm on my knees at this altar and there's kids all around me, including this cheerleader who'd invited me there, there, there are kids who are openly weeping as they, uh, are born again. And, and what I was being told by a number of them, or what I was at least being asked by a number of them was, do you if you say these things, you're going to feel this intense heat in your chest and you're going to see this bright light and it's going to, you're going to feel God take huh. you into his arms. You know, it's that kind of very visceral experience. Yeah. yeah. And, and I remember distinctly then saying what I was supposed to say and doing what I was supposed to do. And then sort of gauging everyone's expectations around me, which by the way, are also fueled because of the age by a lot of peer pressure. Yeah. So, feeling like, well, I have to say yes, or I, I must have no soul or I must, I must right. have done it wrong or whatever it is, you know, you're questioning yourself, but that kind of experience of seeing kids, you know, and I'd also, I'd seen people speak in tongues growing up and I'd, okay. you know, I'd seen, yeah. I, I, I'd been around that kind of thing. So that kind of, I don't know, if, I mean, the simplistic way of referring to it as a religious experience, that kind of experience is a, is it was similar to the kinds of reactions that I was seeing in kids at my school when mm. they would show up on a Monday yeah. and tell you with all the conviction in the world, I saw a, flo a body floating in the air in the yeah. pool. Yeah. You know? And, and so there's a part of me, yeah, that, that I suppose I know some of my friends, I, I don't know if I ever really fully waffled on this, but, but I suppose I, I, I was, I, 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 
I mean, I've always been fairly open to if, if whether or not I've had an experience, I'm, I'm certainly open to other people's yeah. experiences. And so I, I do remember, yeah, it's an interesting question. Cause I suppose I do remember feeling on, on some level, like, or at least questioning on some level, did we, did we start yeah. something here that we shouldn't <laughs> yeah. have? Uh, I guess I wanted to ask, I guess, two final questions. The first one being, because when I heard, when you described, and this relates to the Bible Belt and like mm-hmm. your choice of making it kind of a devil worship house. Mm-hmm. When you first, before you got to that, and you said the, the roof was red and mm-hmm. black, mm-hmm. I, and you mentioned World War II, mm-hmm. I thought of like German oh, yeah, stuff. Right. Like, sure. Did you guys think of like maybe going that route? Or... No, I don't know what it was. I, I suppose, you know, again, I'm going to, I, apologies to any Blue Oyster Cult fans, um, but they had a, they had a record that was out at the time that was called Fire of Unknown Origin. And it had these sort of shrouded sort of druid-like figures on the front with these bizarre symbols all around it. And, and it had a song that we wound up using in the Supernatural episode called Burnin' For You. And everything about that imagery and that sort of sonic experience yeah. is, I think, what helped push us into the red, black equals devil colors equals let's okay. do that. You okay. know? Yeah. I suppose we could have just as easily turned it into a Nazi, you know, Bund home or whatever it is. But like we didn't we didn't get there. We wound up stopping off at yeah. devil. <laughs> well, I, I think the devil, given the, the community you, yes. you described, would be more impactful. Yes, and you know, a, it's interesting because I was telling my kids this story recently. Again, growing up in advertising, parents who were in that business and and then later working in it myself, you know, I remember just a couple of years prior to this whole Devil House experience being on a school bus and a kid getting on the school bus one morning with a postcard that he had gotten from his parents or he'd gotten at church, wherever it was. Yeah. But the postcard was an image, a photographic image of the skyline of Manhattan and then superimposed over the skyline in the clouds, which were spectacularly dramatic clouds, Yeah, was an image of Christ with his arms outstretched in the clouds looking down on Manhattan. And the kid who got on the bus with the, with the postcard, you know, who was probably all of 12 years old, 11, 12 years old, was could not more excitedly show this postcard to everyone on the bus saying, look what I got. Somebody actually took a picture of Jesus in the sky over New York. Oh, okay. And look at this, look at this. And everyone, one kid after another was like, wow, oh, how did they get this? Wow, it's amazing. And then when it got passed to me, I just remember looking and sort of not in a judgmental way, but just sort of matter of factly saying, because I knew this vocabulary from my parents and their advertising. I just remember saying nonchalantly, no, that's, that's a superimposed image. That's actually an illustration of Christ. And then it's just, it's put over the skyline of man. And this kid, like a scene from invasion of the body snatchers, literally pointing at me and saying blaspheme, blaspheme you know and sort of me that was a that was a really early formative experience for me in terms of like feeling judged but also seeing how passionate people can be in their beliefs yeah you know against any evidence to the contrary so 
So again, maybe that's also where some of this impulse came from to sort of play like, oh, this is going to be a devil house. We're, we know we're tapping into something, yeah. into some sort of some deep beliefs and, and maybe some primal fears that right. have been drummed into, in particular, young people. Yeah. Right? So, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the devil house. So uh, with that in mind, I guess my final question for you uh, is something I do ask a lot of people, but mm. in this case, I think it is fitting. Mm. Uh, you told a story that's, you know, I, I would say decades old, not to age you, Indeed. but, but yes. it's decades old. Mm -hmm. I had hair. And uh, <laughs> friends, colleagues, people interested in you, students, they may all find the story and hear it. Uh -huh. So how do you feel unearthing this for the world? All over the world, too. Yeah, I feel... Uh, look, I, I hope... Okay. I hope on the positive side of things that people can accept it as um, it being not only, uh, yes, a prank and, and me having a laugh at other people's expense, which could certainly be viewed through a negative lens. I hope the positive side of things is that... Um, this was one of those experiences that before I knew I would, before I could have even dreamed of being an actual professional storyteller, I was storytelling. Yeah. Right? And, and I was honoring a time held tradition of storytelling, literally, you know, around a campfire or at least a torch or a flashlight or whatever. Yeah. I was spinning a scary story, uh, the way you would hear at summer camp. Um, and, um, and and it was creatively empowering for me to yeah to be able to tell a story in a way that that was convincing and that and that spurred that strong of an emotional response that is something that whether you're working in film or in television professionally like that's that's what you live for right you live for when you can scare yeah. people or thrill people or make people laugh or make people cry when you can when you can really elicit that kind of emotion and when you can make things either better or worse than they actually are. Yeah. Like it was already a creepy old house and right. then we made it worse. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I, I, I would like to think, or at least I hope that while there may be certain people who will hear this, including if she's still around, God bless her, you know, my high school newspaper teacher who's probably really angry with me now um i hope that there are still uh more uh more people who can appreciate that this was this was a testing ground for a storyteller and i was in search of a medium i just hadn't found it yet but those same skills that were put to use at a house in 111th and sheridan they're the same kinds of things that i play with on a laptop to this day yeah sort of trying to weave that weave that tangled storytelling web that we all do yeah it was just uh it's just practice for now it's practice. exactly <laughs> but uh on that note uh, i want to thank trey thank you for unveiling the secret prank <laughs> thank you years. very much it was a great pleasure and uh if any of my kids or other people's kids are listening don't try this at home <laughs> yeah <laughs> or in anybody else's home yeah yeah good good disclaimer and uh thanks so much thank you bye Hey, if you'd like to know when our next new episode comes in, it's easy. You can subscribe for the best story I never told. That's right, on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher.